first time that we went over seven figures, I had 15 matters for my client that billed more than $15,000. So that's picking up a lot of nickels. And that's going towards the smaller issues and realizing that I would rather hit a bunch of singles than sitting there waiting on a home run. Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. I'm your host, Jan Roos, and I'm here today with Todd Stanton of Stanton Law. So Todd's been practicing business law based out of Atlanta for the past few years and has been on the Law Firm 500, posting a really impressive over 140% growth last year. So uh, thanks for your time, Todd, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. So uh, we kind of got the high-level overview, but would you mind telling us a little bit more about sort of the origin story and how you got to where you are today? I'm an HR lawyer, and all I've done since graduating law school at the University of Georgia in 2002 is practice management side employment law, representing businesses with their employment law issues, whether it's onboarding or policies, and then all the way through separations and, and litigation when it, when it comes to that. Went through big law for about nine years till 2011 when it dawned on me that all lawyers are self-employed, and I was looking at what partnership looked like for uh, the big firm, and it was not something that was enticing to me, and figured that if I were going to be self-employed, I might as well truly do it, and went out in November 2011 and started Stanton Law as a solo practice designed to help small and, and medium-sized businesses and entrepreneurs deal with their employment law issues. Uh, it's been a good ride since. We've expanded. We're now at 10 attorneys that broadened out from pure HR law, which is Still my focus to more commercial issues. We also have a, a new transactional team and uh, with a tax emphasis and succession planning component. We have an intellectual property and trademark attorney who's, who's generating revenue for us as well. So it's been a good ride over the past seven years. I'm looking forward to a dozen or so more. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So basically, that's a pretty impressive growth. So um, solo to 10 attorneys in a mere seven years of them doing the math right. One of the things you brought up that I want to dig into, and I think this is pretty important, especially in the world of corporate law, when uh, people put their shingle out and just say that they're a business attorney, um, you know, automatically you're in the same competition with, uh, you're in competition with the same firms as, you know, the Paul Weisses of the world. But the thing the focus that you initially took on HR law is pretty interesting because, you know, one of the things we'll talk about on the show a lot is the importance of having a niche. But that being said, you guys seem to have uh, branched out a little bit further. So would you mind telling me a little bit about those early years when you were focusing on the HR side of things, how that ended up uh, influencing how you guys uh, started scaling out the attorney base? That's a lot of questions in there. But my emphasis on employment law was a function of marginal grades my first year in law school. And I recognized pretty quickly that I was not going to be with B pluses and B minuses and various first year classes was not going to be an eligible candidate for the white shoe law firms that I had originally anticipated working for. And so what I did instead was pick the area that was most intriguing to me, which at the time was and still is employment law, and focused on those courses and then was able to make a pitch to several boutique firms that don't pay attention to that civil procedure mark or that criminal mark and instead look at my good grades and work in the employment law world, which is what you're going to hire me to do. That worked and that got me started down that path. As I started into the practice, though, one of the things I realized is that uh, my billable rate times the number of hours that I'm, I'm willing to work was not going to get me to the income thresholds that we needed as a family. And so that's when I started adding in the other attorneys. Our model at Stanton Law is such that I look at the other attorneys in my firm 
who are all W-2 employees, but I look at them as my customers as well. And I preach to them over and over again that they are responsible for their own practice and their practice development. We provide the, the administration for them and associate support and practice management software and tax advisory or 401k and health insurance and all of those, those incidentals of bigger firms, but they're responsible for doing it. And in exchange for that, they give me a portion of their collections. That is where the majority of the, the Stanton family income comes from, is providing those support services for those other attorneys as we form the nucleus of a, a collaborative firm and provide uh, cross-selling to our various clients, marketing efforts, and those sorts of things. So with respect to how we distinguish it to, from other firms, everybody's a good lawyer. And our approach to employment law is a bit different in that we, we emphasize practical solutions rather than punching people in the nose through the protracted litigation, trying to get our clients back to business as soon as possible. Because as we all know, litigation is expensive and disruptive and particularly so for, for employment issues. So we emphasize that. And then we emphasize the fact that we're a more approachable firm. Dogs running around our office. We have a concrete floor with a garage door. Our clients find that very comfortable and inviting. Uh, and certainly a lot less intimidating than headed down to a, a midtown monolith on the 32nd floor. Very interesting. And then as far as the kind of clientele that you guys are looking at, do you differentiate based on like who ends up kind of resonating with the sort of vibe that you guys are putting out there more? Well, there's two kinds. We've built our, our practice on small and medium-sized businesses, owner-operators with anywhere from two to 150 employees. And that's gotten us over the seven-figure mark for the past couple of years and, and is responsible for a lot of the growth that, that you mentioned earlier. As we've gotten to that, though, we've recognized that there's a, a need to be filled for much larger clients as we handle the relatively low-consequence HR matters for bigger companies. We represent a couple large, much larger companies, 100,000-plus employees and then down to 10,000 employees, and handle their EEOC charges, their demand letter, their any of their contested separations on a flat rate for these clients and, and are able to squeeze some efficiencies out of those matters and put it towards our bottom line while while getting the, the busy in-house counsel at those larger companies the more bandwidth to handle their strategic issues rather than worrying about, uh, like I said, the relatively low consequence contested separations in their shops. Right. And then, you know, this is actually a very classic business model of uh, disruption where you're kind of looking at some less competitive, less attractive to some of these larger firms. And some of these, I mean, it's obviously like, you know, seven figures of business to be made on focusing on these issues that a lot of these other firms aren't paying attention to. It's also more than that. It's not only that it's something that they don't want to do. When they do it, when those larger firms do, and they do it well, obviously, they're, they're good lawyers too. They, they approach it as a loss leader. They're looking for litigation at the end of the EEOC charger or contested separation. Right? They're looking for $120,000, $150,000 worth of fees over the next 18 months is that good cycles through the federal court. We, we provide profit center level attention to the EEOC charge or the, or the dispute itself and don't, don't necessarily want to buy for the, the ultimate litigation if it turns into that. Very few of them do. We can handle the litigation if necessary, but our focus is on that. We are intentional about that lower level work, not just tolerating it in hopes of something else. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I would say, you know, in today's society, when people tend to see lawyers and think litigation and, and sort of, you know, put up the cross like they're seeing a vampire in an 80s movie, I'm sure it's very comforting to know that you guys are really dedicated towards resolving things in a way that isn't as expensive for your clients. Let me give a quick example on that. In 2016, the first time that we went over seven figures, I had 15 matters for my clients that billed more than $15,000. 
So that's picking up a lot of nickels. And that's going towards the smaller issues and realizing that I would rather hit a bunch of singles than sitting there waiting on a home run. And it's been effective. And clients appreciate knowing that they're going to head into something that is contentious and disruptive, but that they're going to come out of it with a $7,500 bill rather than a $75,000 bill. And obviously, I can't promise that for everybody, but that's, that's our approach. And we back it up with the numbers. Yeah. And like back to the strategy thing, you know, it's uh looks like everyone's kind of looking for these home runs, but you know, there's definitely a business to be made if you're just, I mean, essentially it turns from the giant client uh, stakes and handshakes deal closing to, you know, getting a lot of those smaller volume businesses and just scaling as a volume business, essentially as instead of just a whale hunter. Yeah. You know, we're small enough. We can still provide all the personalized client service for these things. And we have the capacity to handle the bigger clients because they're a little more sterile towards these things. But certainly handholding the entrepreneur and the, and the medium sized business owner through this is, is where we where we've made our our market so far. Very, very interesting niche positioning. So Todd, I want to transition the conversation a little bit into how you guys are end up getting these clients. Uh, I'm sure referrals are a big part of your business, but um, you know, it seems like there's almost this kind of inscrutable way that a lot of these white shoe law firms that you've worked at, it's like, you know, you have uh, this 150 year record that they've been doing. They've got the big partners that have been doing it forever. Um, but how does one really break into as a new business law firm, getting these new clients for the first time? And how are you guys able to do that? I'd like to take credit for this, but one of the firms at which I work, the last one, Brian Cave, and Brian Cave has a very strong emphasis on practice development and associate business development and sort of set up a paradigm to a partner named Steve Sunshine, who I greatly admire. And Steve really empiricized practice development and relationship marketing. So he went out and looked at what qualifies somebody as a rainmaker. And what he discovered is that these folks don't do anything they don't want to do. They hang out with the people they like. They keep in touch with their friends and with uh, those who may share common interests. And they develop their business out of those relationships through referrals and through uh, references, through the you know, waiting for an attorney, I mean, waiting for a contact to move into a position where they can decide who gets their business. But since you're hanging out with somebody you like anyway, it's certainly not a chore, it's not wasted effort, and you never know where business is going to come from, so you might as well be around the people you like while you're waiting for it to come. And by spreading a lot of those seeds and maintaining those deep, meaningful relationships with folks and developing them, that business comes about takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of phone calls, and it takes a, a lot of uh, intentional effort to maintain those contacts and relationships, uh, but it eventually pays off. And when somebody selects Stanton Law to be their lawyer based upon those relationships rather than something a little more superficial like price or RFP, they're more likely to be bought into our approach to dispute resolution. They're more likely to take our advice. And we spend a lot less time swimming upstream and arguing with clients who might be tire kicking or shopping around for price or somebody who looks more like a lawyer than we might. That's really interesting because, you know, networking is one of those things that it seems like every single firm has to do it on some level. This is the first time I've spoken to somebody who's kind of come up with that approach, though, Todd, as far as, you know, not trying to make it as, you know, how many bar association happy hours, how many B&I meetings going to hit, but actually doing the kind of stuff that's going to actually resonate with you personally and not be a waste of your time and something that you enjoy regardless. But I'm sure, you know, the kind of connections that you end up making through those, it's more genuine, which, I mean, even within the realm of referrals, which are probably the strongest in terms of close rate across the board for most law firms, I would even say that the referrals that come from that are probably stronger than your referral in general. Yes. I mean, certainly I rely a ton on other small and, and medium-sized practitioners who don't do, in my instance, employment law. And, you know, employment law is it's not rocket surgery. I mean, not many people graduate valedictorian from law school and, and go into an 
employment law, but it is particular, and you have to know it. And a, a general commercial practitioner who's not familiar with the ins and outs of the FLSA is going to screw it up. And so getting in front of those general practitioners or the, or the corporate guys or anything else who can issue spot and send it our way, yeah, those are huge referrals. And it has been a big source of business and something that certainly I would be talking to you about. You guys have done a lot of, uh, it seems like, you know, in the acquisition of the other night, term, well, not acquisition, but um, in scaling the firm from... Yeah, Christian. Yeah, uh, scaling up from one attorney down to ten. I mean, it seems like uh, the way in which you've done this has been very deliberate. The cross sells that you mentioned earlier, and, and being able to kind of take the one person who might have that employment related issue and then get them into the IP or, or you know any of the other attorneys that you've added to the practice. You know, that must have been a very interesting thing. So, could you tell us a little bit about how you prioritize those first hires and, and how things have changed and what it might look like today? Well, the first couple of hires were out of they were lifestyle hires. I wanted to bring in. Uh, more junior attorneys to do the work that I didn't feel like doing anymore and focus my efforts on more business development. Uh, our first hire, Elizabeth Ziegler, is still with us, and she's turned into an outstanding young attorney. So those first hires were out of uh, looking into the HR world. And now, though, as I look at folks, I look at anybody with a management side practice, anybody with a business side a book of business or a potential book of business, and say, are these people going to be intentional about developing their work, developing their practice? And do they need a platform from which to do it? And if that's the case, then I have a spot for them. You know, we can we can leverage the overhead I already have in place and the lessons I've learned and starting a small firm. And they either can bring over to Stanton Law their existing structure, or we'll give them a place from which they can go out and build the practice they've always envisioned for themselves. We're a very self-directed bunch, and so I look for a strong entrepreneurial spirit and the, the people that we're trying to bring over, as well as somebody who's going to appreciate the value that we provide to them in that back office support for their endeavor. Right. So you're getting a real win-win here when you're finding the right person. And I'm sure that it's you know definitely certainly challenging to find people that fit that. But um, you know it sounds like it's working out pretty well. Now, um, as far as the process to get here, were there any sort of challenges that you guys ran into when you're rolling out this model? I, I thought about that as we were getting ready for this call. And yeah, I mean, nobody knows what they're doing when they start this. And it, you, you run into challenges that you never saw. And I think that the biggest one that I found is what I've started referring to as chasing overhead. And that every time I add a new feature to our service offering to our attorney, or we add a new attorney in general, that creates additional overhead for us that I have to go out and find the revenue for, or that we have to go out and find the revenue for to cover and then provide a return on that investment. I mean, it's not enough to, to keep my net profit the same by adding more complications to my adding more complications to my life every day. So figuring out a way to leverage what we have and not add additional costs is, is the biggest challenge that we've faced. Just we face the new challenge as well. We hired a new admin who came on board for about five or six weeks. She had interviewed very well. We were very hopeful about the initiative that she was going to show and that she was going to help us get more processes in place to squeeze even more efficiencies out. And after about three weeks, it was a different person started showing up there. And we had to let her go this week. Well, I didn't think about that on Monday. And by Wednesday, I'm now back in the market for a new admin having to go do a hiring practice again. So, yeah, you never know what's coming down the pike. And you're always looking for that rather elusive equilibrium that's being just right. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you kind of get into this, this area of forecasting because I mean, you're mentioning things like you know projected ROI and stuff. Now, how do you go about it? I just wanted to kind of dig into a little bit on your thought process on, on how you might be modeling these things out and uh, like what really goes into making a decision for adding you know a new feature or a new uh, source of overhead for the practice. 
any metrics, that kind of thing. <laughs> I'd like to say there's a silver bullet to add. A lot of it's a guess. I recently took a business school class and we talked to them, uh, about forecasting and that. And I came out of it with the notion that forecasting isn't going to be perfect, but you have to start somewhere. And you forecast some numbers based upon what you feel, what your research tells you, what your customers are telling you, um, what you see in the, in the marketplace. And you, you take a guess and then you revisit it a couple weeks, a couple months, and see whether or not your guesses were any good. And then you get to, you may dial it back, you may ramp it up. You have to understand that if, if you don't take a little bit of risk, nothing ever gets done. I'm fortunate enough to have a, a wife who is a business school graduate and financial analyst, but she's able to help project some of the numbers to tell me whether it's a good idea or more often than it's a bad idea. And we work through it. There's no magic to it. You just got to put your work clothes on and We've spoken with attorneys all over the spectrum, solo practices, you know, probably up to the medium size. But um, as far as the actual quantitative forecasting and that kind of stuff, it's it's really one of those things that's kind of reserved. It, it makes more sense the more data that one has in the business. And, and the thing is that a lot of the times at the smaller level, especially if somebody's trying something for the first time, it's kind of the scariest thing because you want more certainty than there is out there. So, you know, you've kind of hit on something really important there, Todd, which is like, you know, the, the ability to just move forward and make a decision. And I'd say like yep. absent of the, the having the hard quantitative data, which, you know, at the end of the day really is based on some subjective criteria. You know, it's you can give yourself kind of the safety blanket of having some numbers of, of but at the end of the day, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, I guess sort of the other alternative is kind of treating things as, you know, what is the is this a decision that's going to sink the firm if we go forward with it, not going to work. And if that's not the case, more often than not, extra deliberation is just going to be delaying finding out something that's going to you know, that's going to happen anyway. Well, there's two parts to that. Number one, you talked about data collection. You know, most of we our practice management system is one called Cosmolex, and we've been pleased with Cosmolex, but there is a ton of information in there that we just don't know how to access yet. I mean, most software products that anybody uses, you know, I think we're only brushing the surface of the resources that uh, it could it can lend to the process. We just we've got to figure out how to get it out of there. The reporting mechanisms for for our practice management system are likely a ton more robust than what we're using, and that data is going to help us once we start looking at the reports and chart that out. Is going to be helpful. The the other part is that the risk that that we're taking. I shared the decision making process with others in the firm. I got a bunch of smart people who work at Stan. And each of them bring a little something different to it. And by talking these things through, I end up with a better idea at the end of this than my original thought standing in the shower. So it's it's being patient as that idea grows and evolves and, and shapes into something that is actually going to help us grow revenue and create jobs for those rounds. Yeah, it's just it is it's not it's not instantaneous. Yeah, absolutely. Now, looking back at your journey, Todd, do you have any advice that you'd have given yourself, you know, when you left the big law firm, when you're starting out, things you would have done differently, that kind of thing? I have two things in response to that question. The first one I learned while I was trying to get out to, to start my own firm. And when I asked other people who had done it, what they would have done differently, without fail, the answer was that they would have done it earlier. I don't know that I could have, and I echo that, I would have done it earlier. I don't know that I could do it after four years of big firm practice, five years of big firm practice, or seven. But if I had started two or three years earlier, then I would be two or three years ahead of where I am right now. So I think I, the sooner you pull the trigger and get out, the better. Right? That would be one. The second part of it is that I would have found a piece of practice management software that I liked. 
And I would have built my firm around that practice management software. Uh, Cosmolex would have been a good choice. Rather than come up with my model for how I was going to run a firm and then trying to find software to fit within that firm. Those software developers, be they Tabs or, or Clio or Rocket Matter or, or Cosmolex, they're all designed around what their developers wanted as a firm, not what I wanted as a firm. And so to squeeze those packages into what we're trying to do is sometimes a clunky fit, and we don't get it exactly the way we want. We've had to make compromises and adjustments. Whereas if I had started my firm with a particular piece of software, I think it would be a it would have been a smoother growth curve than what we've experienced. Let's talk about that transition a bit more, Todd. So you guys ended up. Um, when was it that you ended up switching to Cosmolex? Right at the beginning of 2016. So we are now. Two full years and two and a half years in the cosmos. Gotcha. And then you know, you guys have obviously had some pretty strong growth in the last couple of years. So I mean, it definitely was a, a transition that worked. Now, this is something that that we kind of run into with. I mean, basically any sort of scaling, but in a lot of you know people that are going from the solo to multiple practice thing, there's this point at which you have to kind of take some time off the table, take some revenue off the table, take some managerial resources off the table to do this. And it's also kind of speculative in the same sense that you know doing a new initiative would. What was it like going through that process? And you know, how did you find the time to do that? Finding the time to do it. How do you find the time to do anything when you're in an entrepreneurial environment? You squeeze more out of each day. You work when you don't necessarily feel like it, or you just extend your deadlines, understanding that there's there's probably not a drop dead date for something an initiative like a migration to a new to a new practice management. It ultimately gets done if you make an incremental steps to it and don't put it down for too long. Ours was really born out of necessity because our previous software, Clio, didn't allow us to run payroll as efficiently as we needed to because of the way that our payroll is so intimately tied to collection. And so Cosmolex allows us to assign matter percentages for responsibility to to each particular issue, such as our originating attorney gets 12% of a collection, the collections and the responsible attorney gets 20%. And Cosmolex allows us to set those percentages up prospectively such that when we get the collection in and run payroll, the collection allocation report, I'm not going to say it runs itself, but it's certainly more streamlined than what it was under CLIA. So we had a we had an impetus to do this, and I recognized that our old system was not going to allow me to recruit new attorneys, that our existing attorneys were becoming frustrated with that payroll process. So we set it about. I had a good assistant at the time who I'm tasked with making sure that we did the migration as best we could with any migration of any system, there's going to be hiccups. And I think you anticipate that and you recognize that it's going to, it it may not be perfect. It's not going to be seamless. And we'll absorb these bumps as best we can, understanding that there's a longer term goal. And I mean, two years later, we're in good shape and take the full two years. But certainly looking back, I would make the same decision. That's to be sure. Essentially, it came from a point of pain. Like you could no longer continue in the way that you guys were. So, you know, there was the, the only thing that would have been the bad decision would have been to stay where you guys were at. Sure. All right. Yeah. As far as uh, as next steps, you guys had a great year last year. Wow. What's next for the Stan Law Firm? We are continuing to grow. I think that uh, the practice model is good. There is room for two or three additional attorneys on that, that management side practice that we talked about. I look forward to maybe reeling in a couple that we have on the hook right now and finding out if there's any other attorneys out there who would like this to practice in this entrepreneurial world without having the, the headaches of starting their own practice. So that's certainly one area of it. The business class that I referenced earlier has given me a paradigm in which I can help 
other attorneys within the firm, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, incubate a, a growth opportunity through forecasting, through marketing, through the, the leadership that it's going to take to grow that new market or the new product that they, legal product that they want to offer. And so I'm really looking forward to applying that, that paradigm to the attorneys within Stanton Law and growing revenue in that way and hopefully adding those attorneys and then hiring a, a new associate or two as we, as we move forward. Great stuff. And then as far as the best place to find you online, who are you looking to speak to? And then what's the best place to find you? So there's probably good question. There's three areas of focus right now. One is that attorney who would like to learn more about what practice of Stanton Law would look like. Right? That looking at recruiting those customers is, is, is always in the back of my mind and something that's a revenue multiplier for me uh, individually. The second group is the, the entrepreneur, the smaller, medium-sized business who might be looking for this as a way to, to get their HR or commercial contracts or whatever their, their litigation, potential litigation matters off their plate. Uh, we'd also be looking for, for larger in-house counsel who are, are looking to handle those lower consequence HR matters as well. But then the last and, and perhaps most important is the, the other lawyers who might be listening to this who are not experts in employment law and have clients who, who might be getting ready to step in a big pile of employment law due. We, we can help them avoid it or get them out of it if they already have. So those three, those three segments are the ones that I really target. They can always find me on the web at www.stantonlawllc.com. And uh, our office line is 404-881-1288. Yeah, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Todd. So for anyone who's trying to like, you know, read between the lines and see what's kind of driving Todd's success here, like we can tell that a lot of focus on the form of, of your firm and how it ends up supporting it is, is really interesting. And he's clearly taken a very intentional route as far as the niching, not only in the area of, that he's practicing in, but the type of people he's going after and the way that he's going after them. And, you know, when you end up carving out a niche for yourself, it just becomes so much easier to do these things. And, you know, that's how you end up getting these kind of results. So thank you so much for taking the time, Todd. I really appreciate it. You bet. I appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to continuing the conversation with you again at some point. I wish you the best with Case Fuel. All right. Fantastic. All right, guys. So um, thanks for listening to another episode. And uh, we will see you guys next week on the Case Fuel Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.